On this edition of the Bill Kelly Podcast, with me, Scott Radley, sitting in for Bill today, we are talking about Canada's election, but specifics. There are three area codes that some experts are saying will probably or could decide this election. We'll tell you which ones those are. We're going to talk about COVID vaccines and specifically whether Canada should be doing more to send our surplus to the developing world to get people who have had no vaccines yet vaccinated rather than us holding on to these in case we need a third dose. And Donnie Coy, legendary comedian, joins us to talk about another legendary comedian, Norm MacDonald, who passed away this week. Stick around. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We are just days now away from the federal election. Every poll, every poll that I've seen, every reputable poll says that this is... I mean, it's a cliche, but literally too close to call. We we just don't know. And so close right now that when we say too close to call and we don't know, I don't think anybody even would tell you they have an inkling. It doesn't seem like anyone's got great momentum. It doesn't seem like anyone's pulling away. The, all the numbers are basically in a statistical tie. So what this means is there are going to be certain areas where vote turnout and where certain scenarios, certain circumstances may propel people to vote or may propel them to vote one way or the other. And those particular areas could end up being the difference. I mean, we know what's going to happen in the West, I think. We have a pretty good idea what's going to happen in the Atlantic provinces, maybe. But what about some other places? I want to bring in L. Ian McDonald. He is the editor of Policy Magazine and a former national affairs columnist for the Montreal Gazette. Ian, how are you today? Thanks for doing this. Do we have Ian? Sorry about that. How are you, Scott? I'm good, thank you. You know, we'll get the technical stuff worked out. Thanks for doing this. Really appreciate you joining us. My pleasure. There are, it seems, uh, now, the whole country is kind of interesting right now because it's just, it's such a, a close race. But you've identified there are three real areas that could really determine this election that, as we've said, is too close to call. I want to go through them with you and, and try and have you explain how this might go, what's leading to the, the decisions and everything else. Let's start with your stomping ground, 450, the 450 area code, the Montreal area. Why is this? 450 is the suburban ring around Montreal, which is 514, Scott, as you know. Okay. And uh, it's very comp- Montreal is the liberal bastion on the island. A bit like Toronto 416, uh, but uh, 40450 uh, is very competitive between the Liberals and the Bloc, and um, uh, there's also 418 around Quebec City, uh, where the Conservatives are in play. And interestingly, uh, it was the English debate that made the have brought the Bloc back uh, because of the uh, the question that. Uh, Sachi Crow was asking, not Sachi Crow a poster, but Sachi Crow a moderator uh, about um, Bill 21 and Bill 96 in Quebec and whether they were discriminatory. And that seems to have given the block a bit of a bounce uh, uh, from last weekend into where we are midweek, uh, where they're very competitive with the Liberals again in 4-5-0 and um, maybe stalling the Conservatives a little bit in the Quebec City region around 418, Quebec City and East. So what, very competitive. What about the idea? So you've got competing issues or competing propulsions uh, going on there because you've got, as you say, that comment 
um, by the moderator that seemed to give the block some life in that debate. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, you've got Quebec's premier, who's not directly, but all but endorsing the conservatives. Uh, w- which one carries more water? Um, well, uh, the block would be pretty much supportive of uh, Premier Legault and, the, and his CAQ, uh, Coalition Avenir Quebec, because they represent a nationalist but not a sovereignist view of Quebec against the what we call orthodox federalism, as represented uh, in uh, Legault's view the other day by the Liberals and the and the uh, NDP and even the Greens, and he called them dangerous for Quebec, which was quite an intervention on the part of the, of the Premier. We can't imagine, for example, Bill Davis having said that about an Ontario, you know. Hmm. Ontario campaigns for sure. <laughs> so, uh, okay. So, where then? Um, who stands to who? Who stands to gain out of all this? And again, we've got the Conservatives, who you would say probably should get some benefit from Legault. Um, you've got the Bloc, who's going to benefit. Maybe put it the other way: Who stands to lose? The most? Is it the Liberals that stand to lose the most out of this? Out of, out of no, with all that's yeah. happened. Yeah, when you when you break down the numbers into the regionals among the, what you call the reliable pollsters, and I agree, the ones that I look at every day are Nanos and uh, Ecos, uh, um, and they're both national. You have the Liberals and the Conservatives in the low thirties, and when you it's when you break into the regionals and the area codes that it gets interesting. The bloc is now competitive again in Quebec. Uh, trailing the Liberals by only three or four points, and the Conservatives are hovering around 20%. Most of that in Quebec City and East. Um, so uh, that's something to watch for in 4 or 5 on Monday. Let's go to the other side of the country for a second. Another area code that could potentially have a big, big impact on this, and this is one you've identified, 604, the area around Vancouver, uh, different story because it's not the block, obviously, uh, that's 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 in play here. But the NDP is doing very, very well in BC right now. Um, you know, the yeah. Liberals, I know, were hoping to pick up a few. That's one of the areas they were hoping to pick up a few seats to work towards their majority. Seems like it's not happening. Not from third place where they are now in the regionals, uh, both in Ecos and uh, and uh, Nanos. Uh, Ecos has. The NDP and the Conservatives tied around 30%, and the Libs trailing by about six points in the mid, you know, mid 20s. Uh, that means that in the Lower Mainland, the Liberals are in trouble, and uh, they're not going to grow. Uh, there's 42 seats in British Columbia, most of them in the, you know, in the Lower Mainland, where the NDP uh, are very competitive with the Conservatives, and then of course you've got the two Green members. Elizabeth May and her colleague, uh, where they're responsible for the for their leader having been invited to the debates last week because they're in the House of Commons. Well, we'll find out next week whether they're still going to be. Uh, I expect Ms. May would win in Saanich Gulf Islands. I don't know about her, her colleague. I think that's a competitive play. What's so interesting about this, though, if you pull up the 2019 electoral map, um, and and you know what, I I would encourage people to do this anyway, because it's very illustrative. Now, I understand that some writings are way bigger than other writings, but boy, it is, it is an interesting view of what, how this country is divided, because it's, there's some pretty clear delineations, but back to Vancouver area in the 604, 
that was the one area in 2019. If you look, BC, the whole left side of BC was NDP. The right side of BC and heading into Alberta was conservative. The one red dot on the map was what you're talking about. They've got to hold that, do they not? Yeah, and I think that's one of the reasons Mr. Trudeau basically spent the first days of this week in 604, in Vancouver and Richmond, trying to uh, uh, bolster his standing and that of his party in, in that region. The problem the liberals have is that Trudeau's become the brand for the party, and, uh, you know, he's, he's a bit overexposed, I think. That's, that is certainly one of the words. I mean, other people will use other words. Uh, some will say he's fantastic and he's still a fresh face and all the rest. Others will, well, we know what others might say. <laughs> so we, we probably get in trouble if we say what some of those words are on well, the radio here. When you build the brand and tell everyone the leader, when the leader has a couple of bad days, it reflects on the brand, doesn't it? Uh, I'm going to get to the other Erico, but just, you brought up Trudeau. I want to ask you a very quick question about this. Um, long view question of this. If we end up on Monday evening at 11 o'clock or 12 o'clock or whatever time it is, back in the same position with a liberal minority government, and that could happen, we don't know, but if we were to end up right where we started, we've now spent over $600 million for an election, can Justin Trudeau remain the leader of, can he remain, can he govern the country as prime minister if we've gone through all this and spent all these millions of dollars for essentially nothing? That's a very good question. Constitutionally and according to convention, he has sure. in parliament, even if he has fewer seats than the conservatives in a, in a minority house. Um, morally, does he have the, would he have the moral authority to govern or should he resign? That would be a follow-up question, I think, for next Tuesday and, and beyond. It becomes because a very interesting one. With one thing in view, asking for a majority. And it turns right. out people were annoyed about being bothered at the cottage and you know, it was in the middle of a pan, the fourth wave of the pandemic and the, the, the wildfires in the West and then Afghanistan in the fall, of, through no fault of Canada or, or, or the Liberals, the fall of the Afghan regime, uh, record time kind of precipitated by the artificial deadlines that Mr. Biden had set for American withdrawal by 9-11 anniversary. Mm. All right, so we said there were three area codes, 450 around Montreal, 604 around Vancouver. There's lots of area codes, but three big ones, three big, big ones that could really have an impact on this election. And the third one, one that we know very well around here, the 905 area code, we have been told, Ian, that the 416 is still leaning liberal. At least those are what the polls seem to show. But once you get outside of Toronto into the 905, it becomes a much more wide open question mark. Why is 905 so important right now? Well, I think when you look at the regions, uh, uh, in Ontario, they're basically the Liberals and the Conservatives are basically tied. And when you take out the Liberal vote in 416, all those, uh, all those other easy ridings for them, uh, rather like it's their version of Alberta, if you know what I mean, Right, where they have wasted majorities. Uh, it kind of comes down to 905, where majorities in elections are won and lost. Um, Trudeau got his majority in 905 in 2015. Stephen Harper got his one majority there in 2011. And that's the, you know, the, I wouldn't call it the ring around Toronto, but 905 is turning 416 in what's now known as the GT, GTHA including Hamilton, and um, 
an area that has evolved over the years. I mean, I remember Hamilton as being Tiger Team, which I'm sure it still is, and Tigers even Ron and Sam Escudery and Bernie Colony in great football games. But that was before Hamilton became famous for McMaster Hospital and McMaster University became world famous and before Hospitaling. Uh, did you see that? The survey a couple of months ago that had the top 10 most expensive cities to live in in North America, and Hamilton was one of them, right from Vancouver and Toronto? Number three, yes. Number three. Wow. When did that happen? Hey, listen, people here have been asking the same question if they've been trying to get into the housing market. Oh, boy. Okay. Yeah. And, and when you look at it, Hamilton is 905 is closer to Pearson Airport than a lot of people uh, living in downtown Toronto, right? Is there any, um, and again, I'm going back and looking at the electoral map from 2019. And once again, I mean, this, this map is so illustrative of so many things, but you look at this map and metropolitan Toronto, the Toronto area, a consistent splotch of red. I mean, it is, it is red up and down through Toronto. And then, but as you say, as soon as you get outside with a very few exceptions, couple of them here in Hamilton who are orange, it is blue. And I'm looking, going, do, do you, are you anticipating any real change? Any real change to the look at that map? I mean, is has anything moved that says when we look at the 2021 map after Monday, it's going to look vastly different? Well, if the Conservatives hope to form a minority government, they need to win 905. That's period paragraph. And in terms of the, those four Hamilton writings, I was looking at the 338 Canada writing um, by writing breakdown across the country yesterday, and they have. Uh, uh, Hamilton Mountain and Hamilton Center is safe for the NDP. Hamilton West is safe for the Liberals, and Hamilton East Stony Creek is a toss-up between the Libs and the Dippers. Is that your sense of it? Um, probably. I'll, although you know, I mean, it, things were things were a lot closer in some of the ridings last time. So who knows where things are going now uh, with some of these, but. I mean, again, looking at this, so even if you were to to go there, I guess if we talk about, again, the 604, you talk about the 450, now you talk about the 905, what seems to be the constant is the opponent may be different, the block in Montreal area, the NDP in, uh, in the Vancouver area, the conservatives in the 905 area, but in all these cases... It's the liberals that are the ones who are looking at having to put out the brush fires. They are the constant in all of these, in all these writings. Yeah. And they were the ones who five weeks ago had a 12 point lead in the polls. And, you know, if you talk to anyone who's lived in a war room, if no one likes to go into an election 12 points ahead, it's very dangerous. <laughs> it becomes kind of beware of what you wish for. And um, we all know the saying a week is a long time in politics. Well, we've seen that in the campaign. Yes. One more thing, Ian, about this, because again, looking at this map, and again, I would encourage again everyone to go look it up online. It's not hard to find. It's really interesting. That Toronto consistent patch of red, um, that has to remain red. And the reason I mention that is because you know we've seen some numbers pushing the NDP up a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. If the NDP just steal a few of those seats in Toronto, that becomes a, it's not even about the Conservatives, that becomes a huge problem for the Liberals. Oh, if the NDP were to win three or four seats out of the 25 or so in, in 416, that would probably signal the end of the end of the day. 
rather early in the night for the Liberals. Yeah, it's a um, it's a fascinating situation with these uh, say with three places that are so close. Uh, the Liberals in the midst of all of it, but um, but with difficulties for sure, or maybe you not. Said, you know, as you said, too close to call. As I say, they have difficulties or not, because we don't know. We could find out on Monday night that, yeah. you know, polling has at times, despite the best efforts, polling has at times been wrong. Yeah. I mean, we could find one of these parties truly was up by five points and we didn't know it because the numbers weren't really there. But or right now the it's... social election recently where a two-point shift resulted in a change of government. Yeah. Yeah. And that's it. You mentioned, and we got to go, but you mentioned wasted majorities. You know, it's, it's lovely to win a riding by 80%, but you still only win the one seat. Thank you to Ian McDonald for that one. A fascinating discussion. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. There are those, I think plenty of those, in fact, who say it's essentially inevitable that we're going to need a COVID booster soon, maybe in the fall, maybe in the winter. Variants are coming along. So we're going to need our third shot. I know not everyone's thrilled. Some think it's fantastic. Some not so much. Nonetheless, that is a third injection. And it raises a bit of a conundrum, a bit of an interesting question. Should Canadians be getting a third shot before some people in the world get their first one? Now, it's a question that's going to inspire all kinds of debate. All you have to do is look at the news every day and see the people with different sometimes very passionate opinions on shots. Some will think the third shot is absolutely necessary. Some don't want the first one. You you know where I'm coming from. You know all about this. It makes your head spin, though, to think about how this debate might be framed. Nonetheless, should Canadians be getting a third shot before other people in poorer places get their first one? Doctors Without Borders has put out an open letter to the leaders, the future governments of this country, because as we've mentioned before, we have an election coming up Monday. Let me read a line from that letter. It's a, it's a fascinating piece. Throughout the pandemic, governments, including Canada's, invested billions of dollars into the research and development of the COVID-19 vaccines that are in use today. Yet today, the world is confronted with an inexcusable, deep global inequity in the international response to COVID-19, with people in lower-income countries still largely cut off from the world's limited supply of vaccines. Governments had the opportunity to demand fair, affordable global access to COVID-19 vaccines from the pharmaceutical companies who now control access to them, but they didn't do so. This is simply bad policy and bad public health. I want to bring in Dr. Jason Nickerson. He's the Humanitarian Affairs Advisor for Doctors Without Borders. He joins us now. Dr. Nickerson, thanks for the time today. Appreciate this. Hi, Scott. Thanks for having me. I think I'm going to ask you a question that I've, you know, they always say if you're a lawyer, never ask a question you don't know the answer to. I don't know what you're going to say here, but I'm reasonably sure I do. I'm going to ask it anyway. Do you believe that Canadians should be getting a third shot before other places in the developing world get their first one? Well, let's start with the evidence. Um, so at the moment, there's, as, as you're probably aware, there's really uh, no robust evidence that suggests that uh, third doses for the general population are, are necessary. Um, and uh, it's, it's slightly different for different subpopulations. So people who are immunocompromised and, and uh, older populations and so on. Um, but if we're, if we're talking about uh, ending the, the pandemic, if we're talking about uh, looking at vaccination as a public health strategy and a public health tool, which in my view is how we should be, uh, there's no question that 
getting first doses into the arms of uh, as many people as we can around the world uh, is, is a far more effective strategy for getting the pandemic under control and ultimately ending the pandemic uh, than protecting some people uh, in some countries while uh, billions of people in other countries remain unprotected and, and COVID is allowed to circulate uh, and, and variants to, to emerge that, again, put all of us, including those of us uh, in, in Canada who are fully vaccinated, uh, at additional risk. Let's not make this all about me or all about us. That's that's not always an appealing quality. But but you know what? Let, let's ask the question. I mean, is there a real advantage to Canada? An advantage to Canada to getting places far, far, far away from us vaccinated? Or is this simply a a moral imperative because we want to be the good Canadians that help people around the world? Well, look, I, I obviously certainly think that there is that moral imperative. This is this is the right thing to to do uh, to you know scale up access to vaccines so that people are protected. I think it, really none of us would would disagree uh, with the idea that people should have access to the medicines and the vaccines that they need. Um, but if we want to look at it from a purely self interested perspective, you know, we we live in an interconnected world. Uh, we, we can't forget that uh, in in January. February and March of, of 2020, uh, this was a virus that was uh, circulating in other parts of the world that came to Canada. Um, and the same is true of, of the variants uh, of, of concern that uh, are now uh, dominant in, in parts of Canada. So I'm, of course, talking about the Delta variant and so on. Um, you know, these, these are uh, variants of a virus that emerged in other parts of, of the world and, and have found themselves uh, in Canada and are now creating public health uh, problems uh, for Canadians and, and for our health system. So, uh, you know, certainly there, there is a self-interested argument uh, here as well in, in, in vaccinating the rest of the world to control the, the COVID-19 pandemic and ultimately to to end it. I heard what you said right off the top about the third dose maybe being, you know, the evidence not necessarily being there, maybe whatever else, but the possibility that we could find that we need a third dose, would it not be political suicide for a leader if we were to, if he or she was to give away or donate some of our supply and then we found out we needed it and much like our PPEs back when this whole thing started and then we find out, oh, wait, we're short. I mean, I think any political leader is going to be scared to whittle down our supply. Well, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm not going to comment on on sort of the politics of this. I'm I'm a population health specialist, uh, and and so what I can comment on certainly is you know the public health aspects of it. I I, I hear what you're saying, um, and there there's a few aspects uh, to this that I think we need to consider. So one, the 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 immediate steps that countries need to be taking, and I'm not just talking about Canada, I'm talking about other countries uh, as well that have a surplus of doses. Um, and now there are many countries that have vaccinated large percentages of, of their, their eligible population and, and have surplus doses that are uh, available. Um, a, a certain percentage, and, and at the moment a large percentage of those doses, um, need to to be going out to vaccinate people who who are unprotected uh, in in other parts of the world. This is just a, a, a public health strategy um, that the world needs to to come around to. Um, now we're still operating in an environment where 
there there is effectively an artificial scarcity of of vaccines, and I say it's artificial because I I don't think that the world uh, has scaled up manufacturing uh, as much as we we could have, and that's ultimately a choice that has been made by uh, pharmaceutical companies and and uh, to, to, to keep prices extent. high, supply well, and demand to keep prices high. You believe? Well, it's. It, it, I mean, this is how the industry operates, right? I mean, the the quote that you uh, mentioned from our open letter um, really gets at at this point, which is that governments largely subsidize the development of of these vaccines. I mean, we're talking about billions of dollars um, of public funds that went to support the research and development of of these vaccines, and in in some cases, you know, just to give a sense that that public funding accounts. For uh, there are some estimates that that suggest that it accounts for upwards of 95% of the total R&D uh, that went into these vaccines. So this is not a marginal amount. Um, and governments didn't demand, uh, I think, basic things, access, affordability, um, and, you know, basically optimizing um, the, the manufacturing capacity of these vaccines on the other end. We, had, we allowed uh, pharmaceutical companies to, to maintain this monopoly on, on you know, how many doses get produced, where they get sold first, what the prices are, and so on. And that's created this scarcity uh, that, that we find ourselves in now. There are manufacturers out there um, that have indicated that they are capable and prepared of, uh, to, to manufacture additional doses to increase the global supply. And they're not being allowed allowed to do so. Um, and that's certainly contributing to, to a situation where only 1.9% of people in low-income countries today have received uh, one dose of, of the vaccine compared to 75% of people in Canada. Number of years, three, <clears throat> excuse me, three or four years ago, my wife and I were in Uganda. Um, we were visiting a medical clinic that a very good friend of ours runs and operates over there. And one of the comments that struck me, and it, it really... Uh, it blew me away because I had no expectation of this was that over there and, and you know, I, there was great suspicion about Western medicine among many of the people. They just, they didn't trust it. Uh, birth control pills, for example, were very, very suspicious about what, what Western medicine might offer. If we send these vaccines, what are we seeing? If we send vaccines to developing countries, are they being widely used or is there concern that somehow it's it's not good for them or i mean how how eager are many of these countries and many of these people groups to take this well, we've seen COVID-19 vaccination campaigns rolling out in, in virtually every country uh, around the world. Um, so I, I do think that we need to be careful about how we, we talk about um, vaccine hesitancy and, and this, this hesitance uh, to, to use uh, modern medicine, because this is, a, quite frankly, a global phenomenon. I mean, we're, we're seeing this in, in Canada as well. We're seeing protests and, and so on. So um, I, I don't think that it's, it's fair for us uh, or, or correct for us to say that this is a, a disproportionately large problem in, in low and middle income countries. This is a global problem. Um, and the way that we overcome it anywhere in the world is, is the same way that we do here. It's, it's by engaging with communities. It's by building trust uh, in the healthcare system. Um, and and building trust, uh, you know that that if people are sick and they come to the hospital, they're going to be cared for uh, in in an, an evidence based uh, and an appropriate way. So our our approach in any country around the world is, is to 
to working with communities is the same uh, as it would be in Canada. It's, it's fundamentally all about trust. And it's possible, of course, to build that trust when you're providing high quality care. And when people see that something like the COVID-19 vaccine uh, protects them and it protects their communities. And of course, uh, it's not like we're not without our vaccine hesitant or, or, or those who are against it. It's not like that's just a third world issue clearly with this thing. Um, there is the other part about this open letter that I found so interesting, um, in, in the doctors without borders letter, and it's, it, people can find it online. Um, you haven't just called for this, but you've called for more affordable medications, other medications that we've developed here with public money, correct? I mean, that, that, that if the, as That's you've right. just alluded to, if the government is going to fund this, you better be willing to then provide it where needed. Absolutely. So there, you know, there's a few things uh, in in here that that um, I'd like people to understand. So one is that virtually 100% of the medicines that we use in Canada and and around the world um, have received some form of public funding. So so many drugs, many vaccines originate in publicly funded labs. So in universities and hospitals um, and receive uh, funding from, you know, Canadian uh, research institutes from the federal and provincial governments and, and so on uh, to, de to develop them. Um, and in, in some instances, as in the case of the COVID vaccines, that funding makes up a sizable amount of the R&D uh, funding that, that's required to get a drug, uh, you know, through clinical trials, through, through all of the preclinical work and so on. And it, it's expensive. Um, we think that um, it, it is inexcusable um, that there would be a drug that uh, is, is life-saving or life-sustaining that was discovered or developed with Canadian public funds that then becomes priced out of reach uh, for mm. Canadians, which of course happens, um, or for people in, in low and middle-income countries. And, and so our ask is for governments to, to make common sense changes and say, look, if we're going to pay with public funds to discover or develop a, a new medicine, the, the strings that are attached to that funding is that it needs to be priced fairly um, and, the, and the final price needs to be reflective of the investment that the, the public has made in this. It can't just be priced at whatever the market will bear. Um, because quite frankly, we're seeing people around the world who simply cannot afford the new medicines that they need. We live in an era of medicines costing hundreds of thousands of dollars per patient per year. And that's not reflective of um, the risk that was borne uh, by the private sector in, in developing it, nor is it reflective of the manufacturing costs. Um, so this is ultimately... You know, these are incredibly profitable uh, medicines for people, and that that profit comes at the expense of of patient access, and and that we we can do better than that. If we paid, if the taxpayers paid for all this R and D to get these things out, would as far as you know, was nothing arranged so that some of the money that would come back in would come back to the country, or is it all going to the private pharmaceutical companies? Uh, as a, a, a rule, um, there are no conditions that are uh, attached to the, the billions of dollars of medical R&D funding um, that governments provide, including in Canada. Um, and so the licensing agreements and the funding agreements that we have seen and that we are aware of uh, in Canada do not make this, this ask. Um, so even when that funding consists of hundreds of millions of dollars to, you know, fund a new uh, manufacturing facility or uh, to, to directly invest in a new drug or, or a new vaccine, that funding does not ask uh, for any kind of, of fair patient access or affordable patient access uh, for Canadian patients or for anyone around the world. 
is that a mistake? Because it, let's say, I mean, look, throwing out numbers that are just pulled out of the air, but let's say that the government said, we'll give you the money to develop this drug. When it's developed, we are taking 5% and that money could go towards future R&D to develop other drugs. It seems like it would be a, a certainly a fair or a reasonable trade-off. I absolutely think that it's a mistake. I mean, we we would argue that the the correct thing to be negotiating is is not the the sort of uh, return on an, on investment in the form of profits, but it should be affordable and and fair pricing uh, for for people in Canada to to you know reflect that investment and an agreement that uh, you know that drug would be made uh, available at again a fair price for for anyone who needs it. Um, you know, particularly people in in low and middle income countries where for decades we've seen people priced out of, of getting access to the medicines that they need. This, uh, our, our conversation today, again, stems from this open letter that uh, Doctors Without Borders has put out. Um, it's not a coincidence that this letter comes out right before an election, obviously, but mm -hmm. is this the extent of what Doctors Without Borders will be doing to put this letter out and hope that the leaders do something? Or is this something that you're going to be more aggressively lobbying to try and make sure whoever forms the next government really listens and maybe changes some things? Uh, it certainly it, it it goes beyond this um and we've been engaging with the canadian government on this for for several years um you know three or four years the, we've we've been engaging with members of parliament with parliamentary committees with uh, you know health canada with a, a number of different uh, players um so we will continue uh, to to push for this um and it, you know part of the the rationale for that is that Canadian researchers are developing medicines and vaccines that we need in, in our programs. Um, and unfortunately, many of the vaccines that, that we're aware of, in particular in Canada, um, are essentially stalled. They're, they're, they've been sitting on shelves for, for years. Um, and the reason for that is that these diseases are unfortunately neglected diseases and, and essentially market failures. So I'm talking about diseases like Lassa fever that uh, infects hundreds of thousands of people each year in, in West Africa, Marburg virus disease, which is a, a viral hemorrhagic fever similar to, to Ebola, and even things like schistosomiasis. So this is a, 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 a parasite that infects uh, millions of people around the world. So there, there are vaccine candidates for all of these diseases. Uh, under development uh, in Canada um, that just haven't made it to the finish line. Um, and in large part, that's because there's no profit incentive for companies to, to take them uh, to, to the finish line. Um, so as, as Canadians are talking about, you know, scaling up vaccine manufacturing in, in Canada, we're talking about this biomanufacturing strategy and, and politicians are committing billions of dollars towards it. Um, you know, this, this, it is about how do we finish the 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 work the good work that's being done in Canada um, on vaccine development on drug development um, and how do we create the the appropriate ecosystem to to get some of this stuff to the finish line so that people around the world are able to access the medicines and the vaccines that they need but also so that Canadians uh, have affordable access to the medicines that we need at home as well um, and that requires us to rethink you know this this whole approach to R and D and to demand more. Um, and and ultimately to to commit some funding to to creating this this viable uh, medical innovation ecosystem that I think uh, we're we're now looking at and that we all need. Dr. Jason Nickerson from Doctors Without Borders, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. 
Uh, I would encourage people, if you want to read more about this, if you want to read the open letter, and there there are certainly more details in there, go to doctorswithoutborders.ca and you will find the letter there and it will outline even more about what they are proposing and why they're proposing it. And um, as, as Dr. Nickerson just said, I mean, this is, this is not a, um, you know, the debate can be had about the financial side of this, about the profits and losses, whatever else, but it's the, the position they're taking is this is a moral imperative Canada has. The rest of the world needs vaccines. We have vaccines. It is a moral imperative to get them there. And again, some people, I, I, and I don't doubt it because we saw what happened at the beginning of COVID when Canada sent all of its or so much of its PPE to China, and then we were left without all of a sudden, it was not a good situation. I, you can understand where the hesitancy might be if we've got this supply to give it away, but it's an interesting debate for sure. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. You know, with Hitler, the more I learn about that guy, the more I don't care for him. <laughs> I can't. Yeah. And nothing, there's nothing redeeming about the guy. I tell you guys, I go, how on earth could these Germans, like, uh, follow this lunatic, you know? And they're like, oh, he was a, an incredible public speaker, you know? He could, oh, he could uh, hypnotize you with his public speaking. And then I see him, he's like, strangely, strangly, strangly! I go, what? That's not my idea of a silver-tongued devil, you know? That was Norm Macdonald, the great Norm Macdonald on David Letterman a number of years ago. Uh, yesterday afternoon, Bill Kelly show, by the way, Scott Radley in for Bill Kelly today. Yesterday afternoon when, uh, shockingly, I mean, surprisingly, I had no idea that he was sick. I don't think most people did, but when I heard that Norm Macdonald died, I started, I, I sat down and I, I started making a list of who, who would be on the list of the funniest Canadians. All time. Who, who, who is on that list? Because we got a lot of them. And I was going through, okay, Martin Short. Yeah, he would be on there. Eugene Levy, for sure. Uh, Jim Carrey, John Candy, Leslie Nielsen, Mike Myers. It's a long list. Phil Hartman, Colin Mockery, Russell Peters. Kept going. Jeremy Hotz. If you don't know who he is, you should find out for sure. Uh, Catherine O'Hara, Andrea Martin, Howie Mandel, Billy Van. Just a start. And Norm Macdonald is absolutely, absolutely somewhere in that list. Maybe near the top. I would say near the top. Someone else who's on that list, I would suggest, is my next guest. He is a legend around here. Uh, I'm sure everybody has heard him perform at one time or another. His name is Donnie Coy, who joins us now. Donnie, how are you? There's nobody that you named that wouldn't agree. Norm was every Canadian comic's favorite comic from, from the time he was an amateur. I first saw him in Ottawa on Amateur Night. And I could not believe he he did an impression that only Norm would come up with. He did an impression of John Turner debating Mulroney <laughs> over a math problem, and and he was bang on with both voices. <laughs> and I just Why? knew right then and there he was going to be a star. When you said he was every Canadian comic's favorite, why? What because was it about him? Norm was the guy that comics revered. You know you're a good comic. You know other comics appreciate you and, and admire you. When you, you have a killer bit, it goes nowhere as far as the crowd's concerned. In other words, right over their head. 
and the and the and the veteran comics are standing in the back. They just look at each other without even smiling and just go, "Now that's funny." <laughs> I'll and tell you, you I, know I heard most of Norm's jokes hit the audience halfway home. They go, "Oh, that's what he meant." Oh, yeah. I oh I get it now. You know, your, Norm, your thought Norm on that was one. The king of one-liners, but he was also the one of the best storytellers ever. And he was a favorite, I know for a fact, because I've talked to I've talked to Conan O'Brien and I've talked to Jimmy Kimmel. He was a favorite of late night talk show hosts. Letterman wanted to adopt him. Letterman was such a fan. Mm. I was listening to a story the other day uh, on YouTube somewhere. It was Steve Martin telling about the day that he met Elvis. Now this was way back in the seventies yeah, yeah, when Steve Martin was wearing the was wearing the arrow through his head still, and yeah. it was you know pretty out yeah. there. And uh, he tells the story that Elvis came into his dressing room and said, son, your humor is oblique. And yeah. I was thinking, you know, ob- oblique, I don't ex- even know what that exactly means, but that yeah. may be a perfect word to describe Norm MacDonald as well. Yeah, very much so. I- I've got so many Norm stories. Like I say, I, I toured with Norm. We-, we-, we went to Halifax and Nova Scotia, well, East Coast, numerous times, um, Edmonton, Calgary, Vancouver. Uh, I only got to work with him once in L.A., and that was at the uh, Improv. But we didn't really work together. We just happened to be on the same show. I just I was doing a ten minute guest spot, and Norm, of course, was doing ten minutes. Turned into being forty, and <laughs> nobody wanted him to leave the stage. Yeah, Norm was the like I said. Jim Carrey loved Norm. We all loved Norm. Well, most people didn't realize that Norm, Norm's been sick most of his life. Like he's had cancer on and off. But the last ten years, in the last five years, it's gotten really bad. In the last year, it got. That's why he, he stopped doing podcasts and interviews and everything. I guess, he, it, according to his son, he, he just faded away. Like Donnie, explain what it was that... Now, I know what you said about how the, the other comics loved him, but explain what it was that worked for Norm MacDonald. And the reason I ask that is because most comedians, there's a setup, there's a punchline, there's, there's a story, and then there's a twist. Yeah. Half the time, it seemed, Norm MacDonald's humor came from the lack of a punchline almost. It was just, exactly. he was just Norm funny. Norm would take a, a, a bad punchline and, 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 as they say in the writer's rooms, punch it up. And he, some, most times he'd do it with just a quick sentence, two or three words, or even one word. And Norm, everybody talks about how, you know, how to toot my own horn. You know, on the balls of my feet, like playing with an audience, uh, you know, and just putting hecklers in their spot. Norm, Norm, Norm was years ahead of all of us to do that. But he—that just wasn't his style. That's not, that's not the way he worked. But if he wanted to, he could have. I mean, he—he he could have been the best talk show host ever. But unfortunately, he would—he would have just constantly been putting people down. <laughs> yeah. In a funny way, you know, not not malicious at all. My, my one of my favorite. There's a roast on uh, YouTube. You can see where uh, um, I forget who they were roasting, but anyways, uh, Ed Norton, the comedian, the dirty comedian out of New York, radio guy, the ghost go go figure. Anyways, he uh, after Norm finished roasting whoever it was, he goes watching Norm Norm roast somebody there is like. Watching Henry F- stop in your car at the side of the highway and watching Henry Fonda pick blueberries, and <laughs> the camera went to Norm, and Norm's sitting there like reading a the newspaper, and he looks up and he goes, 
who in this room wouldn't want to watch Henry Fonda pick blueberries? <laughs> the man's a legend. <laughs> and what he did, and this is the thing, I've never, I've never got up on a stage to do stand-up comedy, um, but it seems that, I mean, to do it anyway requires a level of confidence. To do the kind of stuff that Norm Macdonald did, where literally for most people it could just completely blow up in your face and you could have nothing but crickets it was an oh, it extraordinary did. Did. level of confidence time. to be All able to time. do that like i say most people just didn't get it you know um and and even when it bombed like e- even when norman made it you know, i don't know why i came up with that as a as a joke or anything i mean for every one of those he had he had ten thousand that didn't you know he uh he, he was just brilliant he, he was a one word tactician he really was mm. he could just he could shut you down or, or speed you up he could control you know he controlled that that stage he owned that stage when he was on it owned it because donnie you when you say that he was, he'd go from he'd go from sarcastic to, to almost slapstickish you know like like in, in motions like the way he'd move his hand or whatever you know that kind of thing just to emphasize a, a joke or a word or whatever. Like like Norm, when he first started, you know, he, he he was so clever. Like I say, half the time, even the comics didn't get the joke until later. Hmm. Like he, Norm, I, I was with Norm when he wrote the, the most famous bit he ever did, and unfortunately it's not on YouTube or anywhere. You had to have seen it live. It was called Backseat Middle. It's about comics touring, uh, Five comics tour, and of course, two sitting up front, and then of course, three in the back. Normal. I was never the window guy. I was always the middle guy. <laughs> he goes. Meanwhile, the two guys on, on on either side of me. If the car slams on the brakes, or or, or we're in a rear, we're in a rear in an accident. He goes. Uh, um, they they got face stoppers, anyways. He goes. Me, I just go right through the front windshield. <laughs> <laughs> And he goes, if you ever stick your hand underneath the back seat, you never know what the hell you're coming up with. Could be a quarter. <laughs> Could be somebody's false teeth. <laughs> and then, there's a sense that... Have you ever seen him do his Lou Gehrig? No, no. Oh, you got to see that. That's on YouTube as well. He does He does the uh, every, every the anniversary of Lou Gehrig's uh, speech at, uh, uh, I was going to say Madison Square Gardens, at Yankee Stadium, uh, where today is the greatest day of my life. Norm goes, you're dying of disease. <laughs> you can't go out and say it's the greatest day of your life. Like, he always had twists on it. Like, one of his most famous twists was, he goes, hey, I see now they're going to have a Mr. Universe contest. I don't know, you know, just the way Norm talks. I don't know about you guys, but uh, I'm going to vote on uh, Mr. Earth, uh, what with the home planet advantage and everything. <laughs> There was a real sense when he would do... Now, you knew him, so you, you can answer this. There was You got the sense, and I don't know whether it was just his act and his shtick or real, that he couldn't care less if you laughed oh, no. or not. No, no. But nor is that true, it, or did, did he really care? He, did his show, he didn't even do a show for his parents when they'd come to see him in the early days in Ottawa. Well, his dad, anyway. Uh, no, he did his show for him. He knew that... You either liked him, or you, and he realized there was enough people that would get his sense of humor. But he did his show for him. He goes, that's why he, he, he tried, you know, that's why he never took off on Saturday Night Live. He couldn't write for other people. 
that's why they had to make him that you know write his own stuff and be be on the the headline news, the headline desk, because he could not write jokes for other people. Like he he worked in movies. People forget you know dirty work and whatever. He never wrote a, a line in those movies. He goes. He was just he was just luggage. We started, I want to go back to something for just a second before we carry on with Norm, although it ties into it. We started by, you know, I was telling you that like this sort of list off the top of my head that I was jotting down of funny Canadians. This has been, this has been asked before, but what's, what's our secret sauce in this country that's allowed us to produce so many funny people, like legendarily funny people. We, as opposed to, we're very close with the British when it comes to that. We're very self-defacing, whereas the U.S. is very, look at me laugh at me it's all about me it's all about us there's no other country in the world except america which they keep unfortunately proven politically with riots and everything else mm. whereas canadians are self we make fun of ourselves we, we don't mind making fun of ourselves we like we make fun art art theory you know it's like two brothers i can make fun of them but you can't yeah yeah, you know what I yeah, mean. Yeah, I know First exactly. Canadians what you mean. are. I can make fun of them, and he can make fun of me, and and Mum will make fun of both of us. But we all love each other, and we all we all respect each other. And as ca- Canadian comics, that's true. And the comics that don't fit, boy, it doesn't take long for for other comics to go on. Either they'll work with them, but they just won't hang out with them, or they'll refuse to absolutely work with them. You know, it's like going to work, you know, and eventually you have to go to the boss and go, I can't stand working with that guy in the cubicle next to me. You know, he, he's got no sense of humor or, or he's just rude or, or I, you know, we just don't get along and it, and it makes it harder for me to come to work every day. Can you transfer me to another department or, you know, I don't want to quit. I need the job, but those can, comics... We couldn't quit because we got another job the next night, and it's in a different room with different people. So you put up with it. One of the things you find if you go down a Norm McDonald rabbit hole on YouTube, which a lot of people did last night. Uh, oh, yeah. When they, um, I'll bet you it, YouTube it, got more Norm McDonald hits. I bet. Yes, I bet. Uh, right now, in this last, let's say, 36 hours, than any other person at any given I time. I bet. And, and that goes to. You know, like nine eleven and everything. I'm serious. All millions. Because don't forget, people forget that Norm wasn't only famous in the U.S. and Canada. He was famous worldwide. He was a star in Europe. They loved him in England. He was a college hero in the eighties and nineties, especially the early late eighties, early nineties. They loved him. He was selling out. He was selling out arenas of college students at Ohio State and Michigan State and you name it. People didn't realize that. Thing- Norm did a lot of corporate work that people don't realize. Huh. Like, he did no, corporate I didn't know that. work for like GM and Toyota and all the major companies. Like private One of the things shows. I didn't realize, Donnie, about his YouTube stuff, about a lot of his stuff, until you start watching it again, is there was, Norm was a guy who worked on the edge at times. I mean, there's, there's a lot of things that by today's standards from, if you look from 15 or 20 years ago, by today's standards, people's heads would explode if you did oh, this yeah. joke. Oh yeah. Um, different times. I, like I understand that. that. Cause it was, because it was he needed to be on the edge. Right. Was, was he was best on the edge? And it was on YouTube and YouTube wasn't going to kick him off. He's too popular. Hmm. But yeah, that, I I suggest anybody want to know the real norm or, or 
sum up his career, watch all of Norm's podcasts. There's about a dozen of them on there, or maybe a few more even. But you know, there's ones with, with when, when he's with like his good Canadian friends like Jim Carrey, and uh, and then he's with like Mike Tyson and stuff like that. It, they're really in depth and they're really good. And the guy that manages the comedy store now acts as his co-host. He's he's a, he's a nice guy too. He's not funny, but he's nice. <laughs> that's the worst thing. That's the worst thing you could say to a comic. You're not funny, but you're a nice guy. <laughs> Maybe the greatest trick, though. That I, Donnie, that for about Norm, maybe the greatest gift that he had, or one of the skills that he had, is even though, again, some of the stuff that he did was edgy and was probably by today's standards, we would might say offensive. I, I don't, other than maybe OJ Simpson, who I'm sure is not uh, mourning yeah. today because he was just roasted by McDonald endlessly. Oh, hell yeah. Well, even people, OJ. but I don't hear anybody speaking negatively and even before no. he died no one says anything bad about norm, him when he died norm, but somehow he norm was able no to do enemies. this i know nobody says you know he's let's we've all said bad things about people after they've died maybe not not on air or anything but you know to to our friends or to people that that really knew the person or whatever i mean you know the, the old adage you got nothing that nice to say to, which, which applies but norm you don't have to do that nobody had nobody had a mean word about norm Nobody said, oh, Norm made it, Norm got lucky, or Norm got the good breaks. Or, lucky, Norm fought through cancer to be funny. Mm-hmm. He mm-hmm. loved being funny. The only other thing he loved as much as comedy, believe it or not, was his son, which he hardly ever talks about. But it's true. He, he, he adores his son. Absolutely. Yeah, his, his edgy... His edgy stuff somehow, unlike a lot of people who would get in trouble, it it, it seemed almost benign. There was a non-threatening part about I know when but, he was but, sort but of on the edge. Used it was to be okay. Uh, There's a time in that we were in Halifax, Halifax or St. John's. Anyways, we were doing a show. Norm was closing it, and Norm went up, and this drunk guy, and Norm was was doing picking on it, doing his Don Cherry jokes, where he picked on Don Cherry and sounded exactly like Don Cherry, right? <laughs> and I guess this uh, this Maritimer was a huge hockey fan or whatever, and he starts, he stumbles right up, not stumbles, but and he was a big guy, and he comes right right up the middle of the stage, just staring at Norm. He goes, "You can't do jokes about Don Cherry. He's a god in this country." <laughs> and Norm looks down at the guy and he goes, "I agree, he's a guy." He goes, "You want to fight me, don't you, buddy?" In just the way Norm talks, and he puts his hands at his side and his shoulders up. You want to fight me, don't you? You want to you want to take me outside and fight me? I'll tell you what, I will. But let me finish my little comedy skit here, and then we'll go outside and duke it out. What do you say? <laughs> <laughs> of course, the guy the guy was long gone. He he didn't you know he didn't realize he'd challenged Norm to a fight. <laughs> it was uh, he was a disarming guy for sure. And I would say this: we got to run, Donnie, unfortunately, but. Uh, yeah. I would argue that probably he and Martin Short, ironically, two Canadian guys, yeah. might be the two greatest talk show guests in history. Oh, yeah. And, Martin Short, talk know, show interviews, and, and, oh, yeah. You'd be wasting your time if you put them on the same show. Because, uh, you know, you got to split guys like that up. No, yeah. They're, they're, and, and it's funny, if you look at it, they almost look like they, the, the Martin Short could be his older brother. His short brother, well, excuse the pun, but no, <laughs> you know, quick-witted, like on a dime, come up with something on a dime. Like, yeah, Norm, Norm, bless his soul, uh, 
I'm going to, well, we're all going to miss them, but like again, Absolutely. thank God for modern age. Like I say, I guarantee you I'll, at least a hundred times in, in the next year and in the anniversary of yesterday, I'll be watching them on YouTube. Donnie Coy, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for talking. Hey, anytime, Scott. And by the way, uh, back to our old days, go Cats, go. There you go. Comedy <laughs> legend, Donnie Coy. Thanks for doing this. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone. And for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.